The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Wilson. I hope you are enjoying the new year. This week, we have a special treat, an episode on David Foster Wallace by our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. We get a lot of requests for more David Foster Wallace, and I am the last person in the world who should be doing an episode on him. So I'm very grateful to Mike for stepping up and giving me the week off. I will be back soon with more History of Literature podcast episodes. Until then, thank you for listening. And now, enjoy the episode. David Foster Wallace said, you teach the reader that he's way smarter than he thinks he was. Hello, serious readers. This is Mike Palindrome, and I'm flying solo today on the history of literature. I've spotted Jack Wilson, your regular host, a rare day-night off. No doubt he's spending his newfound free time reading my old favorites, Little Marais, Murakami, Virginia Woolf, sipping a glass of Barolo. So today we're going to talk about David Foster Wallace, uh, probably the single writer most likely to be remembered from our era. I'll just throw that out there. Um, we're going to do this in two parts, part two will be on his 1,200-plus page gargantuan novel, Infinite Jest, one of the funniest books I've ever read, and now in the process of rereading. And is is a real historical, cultural monument. You know, I, it's, a, it's a membership card of sorts. It's kind of on par with having read all of Proust or Finnegan's Wake. Um, in certain conversational circles and social circles. Um, plus, in, in that part two, I'll throw in a bonus bit on his unfinished manuscript, The Pale King. So part one is today, and will be about everything else he wrote, and maybe that's what will work best for most people who haven't read him. And personally, this is how I fell in love with his work, through his, uh, actually through his nonfiction. Um, and I, to confess, I gave up on Infinite Jest three times before making it through the fourth time. So, but we'll get into that in part two. Um, so, when you when when we think of David Foster Wallace, I think the first thing for me that comes to mind is his sense of humor and the double bind and recursive thought that he was so concerned with. Um, he had befriended the memoirist, memoirist uh, Elizabeth Wurzel, and he wrote to her and said, I think I'm very honest and candid, but I'm also proud of how honest and candid I am. So where does that put me? He, you know, I think there's, there is some utility to this kind of self-consciousness and self-improvement. I mean, I think that's the thing that 
is lost. It's not, for him, the self-consciousness was not um, paralyzing. It was inspirational. Um, he he writes later later that he says, you know, you start to write and you, you get accolades and you 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 you're, you get good at it and after the praise you want more praise and you realize that the ambitions that you initially had were delusional but then he says had you not had those ambitions you would have never been deluded so you know it it's it's elucidating the way he is constantly trying to improve himself um, through language, through thought, and I think what's one thing that's overlooked is by his commitment to to people and friends. You know, his constant he was constantly working on his social abilities. Um, so whenever I read an essay about David Foster Wallace or listen to others talk about him, you know, more than any other writer, I just want people to shut up and, you know, stop writing because I feel this immense desire to just go directly to his work. You know, the desire is to get to the real him. The critics must feel that too. They they want to savor the real writer. So they what they end up doing is attempting to steal his thunder to give you a watered-down version of the writer. Because what they might say pales in comparison to just sinking into his work. And that's why I've given up reading book reviews, except after I've read the book. Or if in, in cases where I know for certain I, I'll never read the book. Um, simply that the critic, a critic doesn't have anything to say other than give away plot points. Um, so this is what, that's a long-winded way of saying this is what I'm working against today. And I'm going to stick closely to the text. Uh, so let's get to his writing. Let's start with an appetizer, which hopefully will change your life. It's his commencement speech to the graduating class, 2005 class of Kenyon College. And you can actually buy this speech. It's called This Is Water. You can watch it on you, listen to it on YouTube if you Google, if you uh, search for This Is Water. So he. I don't think Kenyon College knew what they were going to get when they asked him to speak. Uh, he tells the graduating class, you know, 22-year-olds, 21-year-olds, just how, what a boring adult life uh, lies ahead for them, what he calls the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life. Uh, and it's hilarious. I mean, he describes you go to a job you don't particularly care for afterwards, you're caught in traffic, you drive to the supermarket to get food for dinner, the aisles are long, uh, the, the lines are long, the aisles are clogged. Um, <clears throat> and in that kind of routine day that he sets up, uh, it's it's just it's such a great little uh, microcosm of his writing. You know, he sets up this kind of almost bland setting, and then he delivers the punchline and delivers the analysis. And he talks about how in the midst of that routine, the easiest thing for people to do, for adults to do, is to fall into this automatic setting, this default way of thinking. And he urges us to fight against that. And there's a hilarious moment in the, when he's giving his speech and saying that, 
you know, automatic thinking, um, people tend to think of it as something like, you know, prejudice or bigot, bigotry or something from the right or something that uneducated people do. But actually educated people uh, and liberal people can also fall into this automatic thinking. And so he's talking about the misconceptions and the judge, how judgmental liberals are against the right and people who drive SUVs and who don't care about the environment, who worked, who watch too much TV, and the audience cheers and laughs. And <laughs> he pauses and says, "No, guys, this is how not to think." That was an example. So, and he talks about how, you know, as an adult, um, you start thinking more and more about yourself as the center of the world, which is an interesting idea that he, he taps into this idea of this media. Um, I think he, he foresaw what was happening with the media, with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and how you're kind of documenting your life as if it's fascinating to others and you're documenting what you do the most mundane things you do and the m most mundane things you say. And he warns that this is a dangerous thing to think that, you know, you are the center of the world. Um, and there's, you know, and he, he says that if, you know, and this is a good example of how he balances this kind of trenchant analysis and philosophy with his sense of humor and vernacular. He says that if, if you don't break out of this automatic thinking, um, you're, quote, totally hosed. And so there's this rhythm to his prose where he's trying to tell you that you th th this is what you face as an adult. So here, here's, a, here's where he talks about um, what's in your power as a 22-year-old. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is to is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or be it Yahweh or some Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Which is, I mean... When you when you absorb that, he's basically saying that say what you will about religion, at least religion is abstract versus what the other things you worship. And so he goes on. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are what if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. You will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they, they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The, the trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. 
And in this, you know, I, I, I picked the commencement speech because in it, there's so much that he was struggling with personally. Um, he could be very insecure when he started publishing his books. People started to see the obvious similarities to Thomas Pynchon. And he actually, uh, in interviews, uh, claimed that he had never read Lying of Cro uh, Crying of Lot 49. Um, so there, it, I, I try to listen to the speech at once a year. I think there's so much in there about him, but also about just the way we think. And he was fascinated with, you know, the, our time, um, and the way people, uh, you know, what they believed in, what they the way they chose to spend their time. Um, and he understood that he was an academic and, you know, could lose touch with what was going on with everyday people. Um, he, th there's a very funny moment in the, a book, which I recommend. They, they actually turned it into a movie, uh, The End of the Tour. I forget his first name, but it's Lipsky. And he wrote a book called So in the... So in the end, everyone becomes becomes himself, and it's it's basically a series of interviews. Uh, it's a transcript of interviews with David Foster Wallace. But it, it, he he's able Lipsky, who's an author himself, is able to throw in some very good asides, and he notices that David Foster Wallace has a stack of Cosmo magazines in his apartment. And he, uh, Lipsky asks David Foster Wallace about them, and uh, David Foster Wallace says that he loves reading this one particular column. Uh, I cheated. Should I tell? And he says that it's it's good for the soul to read that column. So let's let's back up and give you guys a quick bio. He, you know, he's American. He was born in Ithaca, New York. But a Midwesterner through and through, raised in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, uh, raised by parents who were both academics. The mother was obsessed with grammar and obviously a great influence on his childhood. Um, she was a very sensitive soul, David Foster Wallace said. She, she hated to shout if she was upset by something she would she would write a note and slip it under Dave, David's door or his sister Amy's door. And they learned, they soon learned to write back to their mother by writing a little note and slipping it under her door and so on. Um, the, the mother, you know, really instilled in him a love of language, um, which she carried all throughout his life, he was obsessed with the dictionary, the etymology of words, correct word usage. When he was teaching fiction at Amherst, which is where he went to college, he, he would sometimes step out of class to call his mother, um, even when they were not on speaking terms. I guess they went through some fallow periods where they weren't talking. And he would ask her very hard grammar questions. Um, and he would pepper his class with little grammar stories. And the class, the classes, his fiction classes, the students loved him. Um, 
there's such attention and care on the level of language, but also he was never dry. He he would uh, tell this anecdote, um, which I I get from a wonderful biography about David Foster Wallace's life. I highly recommend it. It's by the New Yorker writer D.T. Max, and uh, the book is called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, The Life of David Foster Wallace. So David Foster Wallace would turn to his class and say, you have been entrusted to feed your neighbor's dog for a week while he, the neighbor, is out of town. The neighbor returns home. Something has gone awry. You are questioned. You say, I fed the dog. The neighbor says, did you feed the parakeet? You say, I fed only the dog. The, the neighbor says, did anyone else feed the dog? You say, only I fed the dog. And the neighbor says, did you fondle, molest the dog? And you say, I only fed the dog. So, I mean, that's, a, you know, that's an example of just how much, you know, words meant to him and he he has a number of essays where he just talks about the etymology of words, which, I mean, um, I think those are the only times where I felt like sometimes he was a little dry because otherwise he has such a good uh, balance of humor and um, erudition. Um, and, you know, people talk about his crazy plots in his novels, but I, I think, you know, the more I reread him, it's really on the, the care and attention on the level of a sentence, you know. And so what is a typical David Foster Wallace sentence? I always like to think of, you know, what's a typical sentence of an author? And I think for the most part, you, 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 you can pick a Dostoevsky sentence. You can pick, you know, a Murakami sentence. So to me, this is this is a classic David Foster Wallace sentence. Um it's from his essay, Consider the Lobster. Gourmet Magazine hired him to write a piece on the Maine Lobster Festival, which is just a crazy uh, weekend festival where they cook, I believe, a quarter, 250,000 tons of lobster. Anyway, so uh, he ends up writing a piece about whether, it, you know, lobsters whether it's right to, to eat lobsters, which is, which is again, what Gourmet was not really looking for, but they published it because they loved it. Um, and he, in it, there's this sentence, is it all right to boil a sentient creature alive just for our gustatory pleasure? And so for me, that's, that, that, that's him in a nutshell. Um, he, you know, is really he he he's trying to be original with every single sentence um hey grown-ups the cat in the hat cast is a new podcast from wondery perfect for the whole family join the cat in the hat and your favorite dr seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. And another example is, he wrote an essay on Tracy Austin. Some of you may know he was a a regionally ranked tennis player. Um, he He was very, very good. So he he knows a lot about tennis, and he's been asked to write about Roger Federer, and he's written about Tracy Austin. The Roger Federer piece is excellent. All his tennis stuff has now been, um, you know, bound and put in a beautiful uh, book with a tennis cover. It's a green book. It's a great gift uh, for the holidays if you're looking for a gift for for a voracious reader. Um, he says this in the Tracy Austin essay. He says, "It remain." He he he's read the essay is a review of uh, Tracy Austin's memoir, which he pans, and he says it remains very hard for me to reconcile the vapidity of Austin's narrative mind on the one hand with the extraordinary mental powers that are required by world class tennis on the other, um, and it's. It's just this great essay about why we love athletes. He says, Top athletes fascinate us by appealing to our twin compulsions with competitive superiority and hard data. Plus, they're beautiful. Jordan hanging in midair like a Chagall bride. Sampras laying down a touch volley at an angle that defies Euclid. And they're inspiring. There is about world-class athletes carving out exemptions from physical laws, a transcendent beauty that makes manifest God and man. So actually more than one theory then. Great athletes are profundity in motion. They they enable abstractions like power and grace and control to become not only incarnate but televisable. To be a top athlete performing is to be that exquisite hybrid of animal and angel that we average, unbeautiful watchers have such a hard time seeing in ourselves. We want inside them. We want to get intimate with all that profundity. We want the story. It's it's a great piece. Um, and in, in his essays, you could almost make the argument that he's more playful than his fiction because in his fiction he gets he he kind of goes down the the rabbit hole um very easily and sometimes it works often it works and sometimes it doesn't um so let's talk a little bit about his father uh he his father had a phd in philosophy and he was impressed by david's ability at a young age as a teenager to absorb books and spew out theories. Um, he read something by his son 
in college and noted that it was more impressive than any uh, about uh, about philosophy and noted that it was more impressive than any grad student whose dissertation he'd supervised and it's an interesting contrast because you know here was here were two parents who were academics and he actually played a lot of tennis and was a jock and thought he'd become a a, a professional tennis player and he also watched a lot of TV by his own admission um so you know he he goes to Amherst double majors graduates summa cum laude in both English and philosophy um that was his father's alma mater and his roommate you know is grows up to be a novelist turned law professor Mark Costello um they were the first two students to graduate uh, summa cum laude in double majors in over 75 years. Um, and they remain very good friends in the 20s, uh, in their 20s, as David Foster Wallace was first publishing. Um, so back to a little bit of his bio after in his 20s after publishing his first novel the broom of the system he decided to go to graduate school in philosophy and um he dropped out he found it i mean his arrogance he he thought that he could go that he his fiction needed sort of a, a foil and that whenever he had other obligations his fiction uh would go would, would come out and um, he would be able to write better. So he figured that if he, if he was in graduate school for philosophy, you know, he he'd be able to write his best fiction. And he was shocked by having to read. I think he had to read like five hundred pages of Kant a week, and um, he dropped out. So he he drops out and focuses just on writing, and he's kind of writing in every direction. He 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 learns that he can write about anything. He John McCain, Dostoevsky. He goes to the the adult video porn award ceremony. Um, spends a summer studying infinity and writes a little primer on it, uh, including theories of small infinity versus large infinity, which had professors impressed and arguing amongst themselves about how an amateur had, had, was able to to synthesize this and you get this feeling that you know he, he could have been so many different uh he could have had so many different careers um and you know he he also just used his brain more than others i mean that's the sense you get when you read his stuff i mean the porn essay is hilarious but in it you can really sense his struggle to get to the bottom of why there is porn and what is the teleology of porn like what where are we heading and i think people who say that he's clever um he is clever but you know it, it it's serving this purpose to find out you know in the end what is the you know, what is the utility of this? What is the meaning? And I think ultimately um, it's it's hard to justify almost anything. I think that's what he came to realize that, 
you know, you you need to fill your life with different kinds of meanings, and you need to figure out how to be satisfied, because there there is no bliss or happiness uh, at the end of you know your searching. I think there. I think he started to feel that when he was writing the Pale King. But anyway, we'll get to that in part two. Um, so just cite, just ending a little bit of his bio, he he was 46 when he hanged himself. He was married at the time to a painter, Karen Green. Um, many writers have cited him as an influence, you know, as varied as Zadie Smith, George Saunders. Um, he, I read that he, he's the most, he's a writer whose lines are most tattooed on, uh, on people. Um, whole websites are devoted to him, including, I'll just cite one. Um, there's an Australian who started a website called the Howling Fan Toads, which is what his mother used to say when, um, she was in a, a state of frustration or ecstasy the howling phantoids so um let me read a little bit of his fiction since i haven't done that yet uh i just want to read just the first the beginnings of a couple of his stuff because i think you know i i think we under underestimate beginnings so Here's a short story called Signifying Nothing from his collection, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. Here's a weird one for you. It was a couple of years ago, and I was 19 and getting ready to move out of my folks' house and get out on my own. And one day, as I was getting ready, I suddenly get this memory of my father waggling his dick in my face one time when I was a little kid. The memory comes out of nowhere, but it is so detailed and solid-seeming, I know it is totally true. I suddenly know it really happened and was not a dream, even though it had the same kind of bizarre weirdness to it dreams have. Here is the sudden memory. So that's the beginning of signifying nothing. Uh, here's the beginning of uh, a story that David Foster Wallace considered just... Um, kind of a, a a turning point for him in his fiction so and the story is called westward the course of empire takes its way it's from the collection girl with curious hair it begins like this though drew lynn eberhart produced much and mark nectar did not Mark was loved by us all in the East Chesapeake trade school writing program that first year, and Drulin was not. I can explain this. Drulin was severely thin, thin in a way that suggested not delicacy, but a kind of stinginess about how much of herself she'd extend to the space around her, thin the way mean nuns are thin. She walked funny, with the pelvis-led posture of a man at the urinal. She carried her arms either wrapped around her chest or out and down at a scarecrow's jangly right angles. She was slatternly and exuded pheromones, apparently attractive only to bacteria. She had a fatal taste for polyester pantsuits 
lime green. Versus Mark Nectar, who was one of those late adolescent chosen who radiate the kind of careless health so complete it's sickening. Ate poorly, last slept well long before the cults went west. Had no regimen, however strongly built, well-proportioned, thick-necked, dark, healthy, strong. This is back when these qualities revealed things about people, before health club franchises carefully engineering of ent- anatomy disrupted ancient Aryan order and permitted those who were inherently meant to be pale and weak to appear dark and strong. So, that's another one I recommend. Um, and, you know, his his eye for a good detail is something that, again, I think if you reread his stuff, um, it really jumps out at you. I mean, he, he was a world-class journalist. The, the creative nonfiction he left behind is incredible. Um, and it's all stored at uh, UT Austin's Harry Ransom Center, a humanities library. Um, and, you know, he started a, a correspondence with Don DeLillo and Jonathan Franzen, and he was very much taken with Underworld by DeLillo and annotated it. So that's down there at UT Austin. Um, I also think that, you know, I've, I've talked about his humor. He, he really could have been a comedian also. Um, he, he was asked to write an essay about why he writes, and he wrote something like this. In the beginning, when you first start out trying to write fiction, the whole endeavor is about fun. You don't expect anyone else to read it. You're writing about, you're writing almost wholly to get yourself off, to enable your own fantasies and deviant logics and to escape or transform parts of yourself you don't like. And it works, and it's terrific fun. Then you have good luck and people seem to like what you do. And you actually start to get paid for it and get to see your stuff professionally typeset and bound and blurbed and reviewed and even once being read on the AM subway by a pretty girl you don't even know. It seems to make it even more fun for a while. Then things start to get complicated and confusing, not to mention scary. Now you feel like you're writing for other people, or at least you hope so. You're no longer writing just to get yourself off, which, since any kind of masturbation is lonely and hollow, is probably good. But what replaces the oniastic motive? You've found you very much enjoy having your writing liked by people, and you find you're extremely keen to have people like the new stuff you're doing. The motive of pure personal fun starts to get supplanted by the motive of being liked, of having pretty people you don't know like you, admire you, and think you're a good writer. Onanism gives way to attempted seduction as a motive. Now, attempted seduction is hard work, and its fun is offset by a terrible fear of rejection. Whatever ego means, your ego has now gotten into the game. Or maybe vanity is a better word because you notice that the good deal of your writing is now basically showing off, trying to get people to think you're good. This is understandable. You have a great deal of yourself on the line. Now writing, your vanity is at stake. You discover a tricky thing about fiction writing. A certain amount of vanity is necessary to be able to do it at all. But any vanity above that certain amount is lethal. 
At some point, you find that 90% of the stuff you're writing is motivated and informed by an overwhelming need to be liked. This results in shitty fiction. And the shitty work must get fed to the wastebasket less because of any sort of artistic integrity than simply because shitty work will cause you to be disliked. At this point in the evolution of writerly fun, the very thing that's always motivated you to write is now also what's motivating you to feed your writing to the wastebasket. This is a paradox and a kind of double bind. So then he urges you to find your way back to the fun. What was the original reason you started writing? And he has a very clever little phrase. He says, under fun's new administration, you know, once you start realizing how to make itself, make your writing fun again, um, that's when your, your writing improves. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for pinch hitting this week. We'll be back with a part two in a few weeks. He's also planning a special Infinite Jest only episode. So for all you David Foster Wallace fans, get ready. I've got some good episodes coming up, including a short story by a very famous poet whose fiction you might never have read. So stay tuned. And Happy New Year, everyone. We're still in crazy town, but even at the bottom of the very worst downward spiral imaginable when things are at their absolute darkest you can still look up and catch a glimpse of light from the stars overhead keep reading and keep hanging in there i'm jack wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs>